If uh, you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn with me tonight to Psalm 147, the text will also appear on the screen behind me. But if you have been with us at all on the past uh, few Sunday evenings, you will know that we are now looking at the closing five psalms of the book of Psalms, which are known as halal psalms, that is, psalms that sing of praises to God. Each of these psalms begin and ends with the same way. They begin and end, praise the Lord. And in regard to this particular psalm, we also see words about praising or singing to the Lord, not only at the beginning, but also intermixed within the middle of the psalm. We see in verse 7 and in verse 12 that there are these uh, words about praising God or singing to God. And so we'll use those points as markers tonight. We'll see them as if they're dividing lines that sort of establish the framework by which we'll look at the psalm in its parts. So having said that, let's read the psalm in its entirety together, and then we'll explore more its meaning according to this outline. So I'd ask if you would follow along as I read, and then after I read, we'll turn once again to the Lord in prayer. This is Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. If you would please pray with me. Our Father, as we encounter another one of these praise psalms tonight, we ask that you would fill our hearts with praise. We ask, Lord, that we would be guided by your truth in a way that helps us to see how praiseworthy you are, and then that in turn would help us to praise you all the more. So, Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. By your spirit, be our guide. Direct us through this psalm 
so that we can learn more of what we should know concerning you and more of what it is that you require of us. Lord, teach us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So this uh, psalm uh, begins in the first verse with an exhortation that tells the people of God that it is good to sing praises to our God and that it is pleasant to sing praise to our God and that it's fitting to raise a song of praise to God. If our hearts are loving of our God, and I trust they are, praise will adorn our worship and our lives. And I hope that there are times that we don't just know that intellectually, but also that we feel it, that we sense the emotional blessing of meeting with God in worship and praising his name. But as all these psalms always do, they do not only encourage praise or demand praise, but they also explore the reasons why praising our God is so appropriate. And so in this first section of the psalm, the section that begins with that first verse and goes through the sixth verse, we also find that there are reasons for praise which are acknowledged. And particularly what we see is raising praise to our God, both because of his creative power and his intimate care for his people. The creative power as reasons for our praise is articulated, articulated in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 speaks of how God has numbered the stars and how he gives the stars their name. Verse 5 adds that he is abundant in power and his understanding is beyond measure. Now this is not the only psalm which speaks of God's creation and his work in the broad universe. Think of Psalm 8, for example. Uh, Paul, or, or David there, excuse me, mentions how God sets the moon and the stars into place. Psalm 19 relates how the sky declares God's handiwork. The theme made manifest in all such psalms, and in this one, is that God is the maker of all the universe. Human beings can gaze upon the stars. They can only guess their number. Even when scientists use their advanced instruments, the number of the stars to them is only a guess. But God, as creator, knows the number of the stars. He has given the stars their names. Names given often speak of the authority over the thing. So God is being described in the psalm as one who rules the heaven. The psalmist is speaking of truth like this. And God determines the number of the stars. He names them. He rules them. He determines their number. He knows them. God's abundant power is above everything he's made. His understanding puts everything into place. And there is a sense, I think, in this psalm then, as we consider this power of God over the worlds he has made that causes us to, to stand in awe of his transcendence. But then again, the psalm also makes so plain that this transcendent nature of God does not make him a God distant from his people. So we don't just praise God for his mighty works, but we praise him for his caring nearness to his creatures. In verse 2, we are enlightened as to how the work of God, uh, what, it, what he does among the people who are his, um, is seen there. We are told there how near he is to his people. He builds up Jerusalem, we read, and that, and that might draw our attention perhaps to the physical city of Jerusalem. 
But I would suggest the psalm even has more in mind the eternal heavenly city of God. The, God, the city he has crafted for the eternal glory of his people. The Lord is about gathering his people in, bringing them to Christ. He heals the wounds of those who are brokenhearted. And again, why that might suggest a more physical sort of healing, I would also suggest we still think spiritually. And spiritually as well when we learn that God binds up his people's wounds. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. The Lord lifts up the humble and those who humbly turn to him even as he brings the wicked down. So in this first section of the psalm, we are being led by the psalmist to see the praiseworthiness of God in his creative work and in his providential nearness to his people. We see that he is praiseworthy because of his loving care for those in need. Now then when the psalmist moves on to the next section in verse 7 through 11, verse 7 begins again with a call upon human beings to sing to the Lord, to give praise to God, this time to sing a song of thanksgiving to God. And it becomes clear that this thanksgiving is warranted and God is praiseworthy through the way he provides for the daily needs of all his people. God covers the heavens with the clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grows on, grow on the hill to give to the beasts their food and to the ravens as, they young, as the young of the ravens cry out. We see in our world that the farmer tills the soil, the rancher raises the cattle, the hunter hunts for his meat. But the first cause and the true provider of everything is God himself. God is the one who provides the rain so that the earth gives forth its produce. The result that comes from the rains that are sent by God is that grass sprouts on the hills so as to give the grazing beasts their fodder. The food chain is a chain controlled by the sovereign hand of God. And again, all of that makes God worthy of praise, a praise that should come from everyone. Notice how in verses 10 and 11, God's uh, delight is said to be not in the strength of the horse nor in this power or is his pleasure in the legs of a man. What we're being told there is that the creature's abilities are not the true sustaining power for life. It is always our God who sustains. And we see how it is that after the psalmist mentions how God does not delight in creaturely power, that we are then told what God does take pleasure in. He takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Our place with God is never established by our own abilities. It's not our strength and our ability to, uh, that govern our place with God. Our sure and only hope in this life is in the steadfast love of our God. And I trust we all know that. And I trust that we all know that the most extreme showing of God's love, which shines the brightest, is in the giving of his own son. Our human abilities can never bring about our own righteousness. They cannot bring us salvation. But the steadfast love of the almighty God is shown forth in the willingness of the Father to send God the Son for the salvation of souls and in God the Son's willingness to go. 
And in all of that, the call then upon each person is also here spoken in a way that says we should fear God. God takes pleasure in those who fear him. The psalmist is saying that our Lord is great and that our Lord provides. But he is also saying something about how we should then respond to such a God. Yes, we should praise him, of course. But there is also this truth that if he takes pleasure in those who fear him, we should certainly be a people who fear him. The fear of God, the fear of God for one who believes in Christ could be defined as a fear that includes a knowledge that God really does hate human sin, including our own. And a right fear of God embraces a knowledge that our sin is deserving of God's wrath and judgment. So there really is a sense in which a Christian's fear of God does fully understand that even the believer in Christ could expect from God this great judgment, but for Jesus, that is. But still this fear is not a fear for the Christian who would lead so as to lead to dread. There is no dread because in Christ we also have this promise of God that nothing could ever separate us from his love. Christ will never leave us or forsake us. So fearing God for the Christian in the end means that we have a reverence for him, a reverence that understands what our sin deserves, but also which comprehends his amazing mercy. And that results in our constant respecting of him in reverence while submitting to his discipline and worshiping him in all. God has brought us near to himself through Jesus Christ. So this biblical fear will stand in awe of God in light of his power and his wisdom and his holiness, all while realizing that without a godly fear which embraces Christ, a true fear and dread of judgment would be most appropriate. Our fear as Christian followers really captivates our hearts, captivates our minds to worship everything about who God is. So in this second section, we find reasons again to praise God. We are to praise him in light of his great provision, both physical and spiritual. We are to praise him for his love as ones who revere his name. Now, once we get to the final section of the verses, verses 12 through 20, we again find it beginning with another exhortation to praise. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. This section of the psalm hones in upon the unique privileges God has given to his covenant people, Israel. But again, you can apply it as well to the true covenant people of all ages, the Israel of God. We are told that God strengthens and bars your gates, indicating he is a protector of his covenant people. God blesses the children within the city gates and brings peace to Zion's borders. He fills the boundaries of Jerusalem with the finest of the wheat. And all of this description, what we understand from it is that God is a God who protects. He is a God who brings shalom, a God who provides for all the prosperity that we have. But pay attention to what else the psalmist writes here, what he writes about the word of God. God sends out his command upon the earth. His word, we're told, runs swiftly. The word of God accomplishes its purposes, and it does so in a swift manner. 
God controls the weather. We also learn of that, hurling down his crystals of ice like crumbs. But see what his word does. His word remains powerful. His words can melt the ice. So you're seeing in these closing verses this flourish that God's word accomplishes its goal. It swiftly accomplishes its goal. And we see that it is, in fact, a word of power. And it's a word that gives guidance, it provides guidance to the people of God. God has declared his word to Jacob, his statue and rules to Israel. His word is a lamp to guide his people in the ways that are right. And God, as we are told in the psalm, had in Old Testament, time, in Old Testament times dealt in the same manner with any other nation. The psalmist here is proclaiming that God has uniquely given his word to his people. And again, all of this is said in the psalm in order to show forth why God is so praiseworthy. The Lord is praiseworthy because of the gift of his word. Do you often praise God for the word he has given us? Do we deeply consider the word of God in a way that leads us to praise? Maybe we would be more inclined to do so if we were more aware that in our day there are still many language in, languages into which the word has not been translated. Maybe we would be more inclined to praise if we were more aware that in some countries possession of the word of God is forbidden by law. There are blessings in his word and we often take those blessings for granted. May it never be that we take for granted our freedom to possess, to read, and to be taught from the very Word of God. Most of us here, I suspect, know the first question and the first answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The second question is a bit less known but it remains of equal importance. What rule has God given us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God. The word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, that is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. You see, the word is to be cherished. It has been given to us by our God. He has preserved it. He has allowed it to be translated into the vulgar tongues like our own. And that is a great reason to give God all our praise. So that's Psalm 147. We are exhorted to praise the Lord. Praise him for his creative work. Praise him for his power and his wisdom. Praise him for his loving care for his people, people in need. We are to praise him for his provision, for his steadfast love over those who fear him. And we are to praise him for his covenant faithfulness, a faithfulness that involves his giving and preserving his word for his people. Reasons to praise our God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for all his many blessings. If you would, please pray with me.